Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, well, today is the first Friday of the month with Sunny in Seattle. And instead of the regularly scheduled broadcast, co-hosts Sunny and Dr. Alessandra would like to take this morning to feature the voices and stories of several black professors, authors, and activists. Because we are committed to knowing better so we can do better in the fight for racial justice. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle and 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find us on iTunes and Podcast One. And my website to find out more about me is goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. So um, I'm coming to you today on Friday, June 5th. Of course, it is the first Friday of the month of June in 2020. Um, and normally, I would be here today with my co-host, Dr. Alessandra Duke. Um, we usually do first Fridays together, if you've been listening to the show for a while. Um, but today is a little bit different. Um, you know, it is June 5th here, and um, those in the United States have been feeling um, the effects uh, in the in the days following the murder of George Floyd. And um, amidst all of the big emotions that we're feeling and the injustice that we're seeing and the, oh, and just the, the call to, to, as Maya Angelou says it so eloquently, to know better so we do better. Um, so what Alessandra and I felt would be the most appropriate today was to use this platform to amplify the voices of the people who we believe most need to be heard right now. Um, you can hear about our experiences in our lives any day. But at this moment in history, I know a lot of us, especially the KKNW audience, you know, we're, many of us are heart-centered people who are activists and um, desire uh, all of the goodness that the universe has for all people equally. Um, and so uh, we're going to use this platform today to amplify some other voices. And um, I just will let you know what we'll be doing here today. Benny, of course, has got some um, four wonderful clips lined up that we selected to play today. And I'll just tell you what they are, um, and then we'll get those going. And um, that will be the last you'll hear of me this morning, and we will play these clips for you. So what you'll be hearing in order. Um, number one is Dr. Megan Ming Francis. She's a visiting associate professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington. Uh, Francis specializes in the study of American politics with broad interests in criminal punishment, black political activism, philanthropy, and the post-Civil War South. Uh, the talk that you'll hear was called Let's Get to the Root of Racial Injustice. And in this powerful talk, uh, Megan Francis traces the root causes of our current racial climate to their core causes, debunking common misconceptions and calling out fix-all cures to a complex social problem. The second clip that you will hear is a short one, but I think it's important. Um, a lot of us are wondering what we can do right now. Um, this second clip is from Asante, the artist. Uh, she is a video producer, multimedia storyteller, and all-around creative, holding a BA in film and video from Harvard. 
She's a very well-known YouTuber. She has a lot of other credentials behind her name, but what you're going to hear from her today is a short clip called How to Be a Good Ally, Identity, Privilege, and Resistance. The third clip you'll hear is from Rachel Cargill, who I am just recently beginning to learn about. She's an activist, a public academic, a writer, and a lecturer. And this is a clip entitled Public Address on Revolution, Revolution Now. This was Rachel's first public address that she just recently released um, to be in community and conversation around the realities of the revolutionary moment we are in today. Using her three-pronged approach of knowledge, empathy, and action, Rachel addresses the recent police brutality and racist incidents in Minnesota and across America, analyzing the modern manifestation of America's racist history and making a call to action for all those who are ready to say no more. And the final clip you're going to hear, and you'll only hear a portion of it, it was about an hour long, but we're going to play it as much as we can until the end of the show. It was actually a recent discussion, I think on June 3rd, hosted by um, the head of TED, Chris Anderson, of course, TED Talks, um, I know we've all heard of those, but this is TED's Chris Anderson, and then they're also their current affairs curator at TED. Um, her name is Whitney Pennington Rogers. They uh, pulled together uh, four amazing people whose uh, voices are very important at this time. Um, they are sharing their insights in this historic moment. Their names are Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, Rashad Robinson, Dr. Bernice King and Anthony Romero, and they are discussing dismantling the systems of oppression and racism responsible for tragedies like the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and of course, far too many others, and exploring how the U.S. can start to live up to its ideals. So that's what you'll be hearing here today, um, and I hope you enjoy them, and I hope you learn as I um, am hoping to learn myself, because when we do know better, uh, when we do know better, we do better. So um, thank you, Benny, for doing this, and um, I will see you all next week. I had just finished teaching Introduction to American Politics to a group of eager undergraduates. This was my first year teaching, but I had pulled off a slamming lecture, and I was feeling good about myself. As I left the classroom, I looked down at my phone and saw that I had five missed calls from my brother, Kenny. At the time, Kenny was a student and living, a student at Temple University and living in North Philly. For those who don't know North Philly, it's an area that is predominantly black and low income with a very visible police presence. When I return his phone call, Kenny is loud and swearing into the phone. I can tell that something very bad happened, but I'm not sure what. When I am finally able to get him to calm down, he tells me how he was sitting on the stoop of his building talking to a friend when four police officers ran up on him and threw him and three others on the ground, handcuffed them and then pushed them up against a wall, all the while asking them, what drugs do you have? What drugs do you have? Kenny had no drugs. He told the officers this many times, but each statement of no drugs only seemed to provoke more force and make the officers more upset. As Kenny sat cuffed and slumped against a brick wall, he quietly told the officers that he was a student at Temple University, and without reason, they could not hold him. The officers finally retrieved his college ID, which was in his wallet that had slipped out when he was slammed to the pavement, realized that he was indeed in college without drugs, and then let him go. After Kenny told me the story, he was still loud and upset. I was shaking. 
barely able to hold the phone to my ear. All of the joy from my great day of teaching, gone, and replaced with a deep sense of helplessness and alarm. I wanted to remove the hurt and frustration that Kenny felt, that I could hear so clearly through the phone, but I neither had the will nor the ability to lie to him about the mightiness of American racism. And we both silently knew that this would not be the last time that he would be stopped and frisked by the police for drugs. In an attempt to try to calm him down and to shift attention onto something that he perhaps did have control over, I had this genius idea and suggested that he focus his attention on schoolwork to kind of take his mind off of things. He yells into the phone at me, "What is that going to do? Why should I focus on my schoolwork when the police are allowed to do things like this?" And then he says to me, "I'm not a student in your class, Megan. Your books are not going to save me." I silently nodded on the other end of the phone. In a lifetime of often heated exchanges with him, I've probably never been more wrong, and he has never been more right. Kenny is not alone. This violent interaction between black men and women and police officers plays out in cities and towns across the United States, often with much more devastating results. According to the most recent statistics. Blacks are three times more likely to be shot and killed by police than whites. The question on everyone's mind, and the question that I get asked the most, is how do we solve this problem? And I confess, I cringe at this question, not because it's not a good question, but because I think we're asking the wrong question. I'm not convinced we even understand how we got to this point in the first place. Better understanding of the root causes of the current place where we are will help provide us the tools that we need to move us forward. However, even I, conf I confess that even I sometimes am more eager to solve a problem than I am to understand it. So a few years ago, I adopted a corgi from a shelter and named him President Bartlett off of the West Wing. Now, now he's super adorable, but he was abused, and he's very aggressive whenever he sees another dog. My fix in my first year was to walk him at crazy hours of the day, but this was this was only, worked only marginally well, and I was stressed and tired. The following year, I decided to hire a trainer to try to figure out the underlying issues behind his reactive behavior. On the first day of our meeting, the trainer looks at me and says, "Fixes that do not address the root causes of an issue are not really fixes at all." I realized that in my haste to fix President Bartlett, I actually had made him worse. The present crisis surrounding race in the United States, I think, suffers from a lack of attention to the root causes. Better attention to the root causes, I am convinced. Will help us to figure out how to move past where we are right now in terms of the current racial climate in the United States. So why does the killing of unarmed blacks continue to happen? I think it continues to happen because we have the wrong diagnosis and the wrong cure. And what I mean by this is, we tend to think the problem of racial violence is isolated to a few stubborn racists, right, that haven't yet drunk kind of this progressive Kool-Aid, and we tend to think the cure to racial injustices in the United States 
should always revolve around education. In the rest of my talk today, I'm going to challenge both of these ideas and suggest a new way to understand the problem as well as the solution. First, part of the reason the killing of unarmed blacks continues to happen at an alarming rate is because we haven't properly addressed our long history of racial terror in this country, which has treated blackness as a proxy for criminality, as a substitute for criminality. Instead, when confronted with kind of these jarring racial injustices, what we like to do is to point to the bad racist apples. We like to individualize the problem and situate it away from us. This is why we're able to make sense of, let's say, a Dylan Roof, the shooter in Charleston, South Carolina, who shot up the black church and had a white power manifesto. But the problem of contemporary racial violence is not that we have a few kind of racist bad apples. The problem is that the whole tree, the whole apple tree, is infected. The problem is that the presumption of dangerousness is tightly bound to race for so many in this country. For police officers to justify the use of deadly force, they have to reasonably believe that their lives are in danger. In all of the high-profile killings of blacks over the past year, officers attest to feeling under threat. But what does this mean in the context of unarmed citizens? It means that black skin triggers a heightened sense of threat, a life-threatening sense of threat, that then influences the officer's decision to use deadly force. According to the most recent statistics, 33% of blacks that have been killed by police were unarmed. But it's not just police that prop up this myth of black danger. This myth gets reinforced and takes on a truth-like quality through everyday interaction. When a black man passes and a woman clutches her purse, or when a group of black friends walk by a car and hear the jarring sound of someone who has just pushed their automatic locks because they are afraid. And I have, and I have friends on both sides of this, uh, black men with great jobs who just want to be viewed as a person and not as a threat after a long day of work. And I have really great white and Asian woman friends who clutch their purse and walk quickly if they see a black man on a dimly lit street and then feel ashamed and a need to overexplain their actions to me. And I've also been on the receiving end of having who I was reduced to someone else's false perception of how much of a danger I posed. Last year, I was coming back from a trip, um, and I was singled out by the TSA agent. I thought that I had left a water bottle, like I often do, in my bag. But he, ush he ushered me to a separate area, and then two more TSA agents surrounded me. And I knew in my gut that something bad was about to go down. Um, the lead TSA agent proceeds to ask, no, accuse me of bringing a weapon into the airport. When I insisted that I did not bring a weapon into the airport, he produces a piece of costume jewelry, a double ring that I had picked up for $4 on vacation. It was like his gotcha moment, and it was my super confused moment. <laughs> um, he then accuses me of bringing brass knuckles, a deadly weapon, into a United States airport. I was almost at a loss of words, which is rare for someone like me, but I politely pointed out to him that the ring was plastic, it wasn't brass, and these weren't knuckles, it was just a ring that went over two fingers instead of one finger. But have you ever talked to someone and felt like you didn't exist? 
Like when they spoke to you, they spoke right through you. Well, that's how I felt. He got more angry at my explanations, looked me in my face and said, you people always lie. I know that this is a weapon and I'm not going to let someone dangerous like you board a plane today. Well, I started to shake, right? Because we've all seen this movie about the brown girl who walks into the airport with a deadly weapon and it never really ends well for her. It doesn't. <laughs> it never does. Um, so I had to do what I hate doing and I used my credentials to get me out of a bad situation. I told, them, I told him that I was a professor of constitutional law and American politics. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yeah. So, <laughs> I told him I cited U.S. criminal code, landmark Supreme Court decisions, and rules from the Homeland Security Rulebook because I also teach civil liberties. And then, and then he started to get very nervous. <laughs> he, asked, he asked what school I worked at. I told him he Googled my name and the blood drained from his face, <laughs> right? As he realized I wasn't making this up, I knew my rights and I was a college professor. And then when he looked back at me, he finally saw me, not as a dangerous threat, but as a person. After a few more minutes, he let me go to catch my much delayed flight. I found a seat in the airport terminal, still trembling with rage at the way that I had been treated. I was only seated for a few minutes when I felt a tap on my shoulder. A woman airport worker said that she saw my whole ordeal and that he does this all the time to black passengers, and I was lucky to have been released from his custody so quickly. But it shouldn't take a university website profile to be viewed as non-threatening, right? Like, like, it just... <laughs> part, of the, part of the reason I share this story and some of the other ones is that I think in, in talking about the current racial crisis, we tend to focus all of our attention on police and overlook our own complicity in creating an environment in which black lives are not treated as equal. To be clear in thinking about solutions to the racial violence, I'm in favor of body cameras. I'm in favor of a non-militarized police force. I'm in favor of stricter laws that make police officers more accountable when they stop and frisk people on the street. But I'm not convinced that we would need something like body cameras if we didn't live in a society that treated blacks as dangerous and suspicious first and as citizens seconds. second. It's not just a few bad racist apples in a police department or at an airport. It's all of us who in big ways through our actions and in small ways, by our silences, support this lie, because that's what it is, right? It's a lie that somehow black folk are just more dangerous than the rest of us. So not only do I believe that we've misdiagnosed the problem, I also think we have the wrong cure to it. We keep offering up education as a solution to all racial injustices in the United States. It's kind of what I call sometimes in my classes as the Robitussin of civil rights. Right? Like, when I was little, my mom like, loved Robitussin. She would give me it, you got a cold Robitussin, flu Robitussin, right? Like allergies, like Robitussin. Like, where's the Penadryl? <laughs> but just like Robitussin is not a cure-all for all types of sicknesses, Education is not a cure-all for all of America's racial sins. And yet, education is still how most Americans understand their responsibility to fixing contemporary racial injustices. 
our measure of how far we have come in the area of race relations is most often calculated in how integrated our schools are, how many innovative education experiments are currently going on, and how many federal dollars are committed towards education. But the problem, the, current, the contemporary problem surrounding the killing of unarmed blacks is not a problem that boils down to providing greater educational opportunities to blacks. This is a misdiagnosis. A book is not going to stop the bullet barreling through a gun at Rakia Boyd in Chicago. And longer classroom times are not going to save Freddie Gray from being illegally stopped and then manhandled by police in Baltimore. This is what I know for sure that in order to combat continuing racial injustices today, we must expand our vision and our responsibility to what civil rights actually means. We must include the battle against racist violence in our understanding of civil rights. Instead of education, what if we placed freedom from racist violence at the crux of what it means to be free and equal in the United States? Doing so does not mean that we necessarily dislodge education. But it means that if racism and white supremacy are a rock fortress, that we assemble a greater arsenal of weapons to break the damn thing down. Now, <laughs> I know this is not an easy task, but I know that it can be done. So in my real life, I'm a political scientist and a historian, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on a surprising finding that before the civil rights group, the NAACP, focused on its historic campaign against segregated education, the NAACP spent the first two decades of the 20th century focused on fighting escalating levels of racial violence that blacks endured as a result of the actions from police, politicians, and private white citizens in the South and in the North. In order to wage this big campaign against racial violence, the NAACP organized mass demonstrations in the streets. They lobbied Congress to pass an anti-lynching bill. They litigated and won a landmark decision in front of the Supreme Court. And they petitioned three different presidents to make a statement against lynching. It was this massive, extraordinary, in-your-face campaign that forced America to confront lynchings and mob violence against African Americans. It asked America how strong was its commitment to protecting black lives. As a result of this work in the early 20th century, the rates of lynching and mob violence dramatically decreased. I tell this story about the NAACP's historic kind of campaign against racial violence because I believe our past history can light a way out of the present darkness. If we listen to what this history tells us, then we must struggle through this current moment. We must confront the ways that our actions and our institutions lead to a differential treatment of blacks, even if done unintentionally. Today, people across the United States are taking to streets and are demanding to be seen. Not as dangerous, but as people whose lives have value and deserve protection. Some of these groups are associated directly and some indirectly with the Black Lives Matter movement. Without the efforts of these groups, so many of these killings of unarmed blacks would have been swept under the rug and we would have lost attention long ago. But so many of these activists 
have denied the comforts of silence, and they are being active around this issue. Their message and my message to you today is that we must pay closer attention to the way that black people are treated. The stories of police brutality and killings of unarmed blacks is not a story about black people. It's a story about all of us, about racial progress and the sovereign durability of American racism. It's about if we will stop making the mistakes of our past and confront our own complicity in this great American lie that somehow black people are more dangerous than others. And finally, it's about if we have the courage to take a collective stand against racial injustice today. This year, nearly half of my students in my race and politics upper division course participated in a walkout in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Halfway through my lecture, I could hear the swelling crowd of students, teachers, and community members in the quad at the University of Washington. I smiled to myself as I had a flashback to the conversation that I had with Kenny now five years ago. He was right, of course. My books and my silence will not save these students, but their activism, their courage in challenging the status quo and this movement just might. Lean on me when you're not strong. Hey, it's Asante, and today we're talking about allyship. A big thing to remember is that allyship isn't passive. If there's a war, your allies don't just sit there like, oh my gosh, genocide? Oh, that sucks, man. Oh, I can't. These, it's so hard. I just, I don't get it. People can be so awful. I'm, to I'm totally on your side. The times we live in, it's just so hard. No, they lend their troops, they lend their ships, they send supplies, they send medics, they will go in and fight for you. Allyship is not neutrality. Allyship is not, I believe in you. Good luck! Allyship is an active process that you're always working on. So here are a few steps you can take to be a better ally. First, listen and educate yourself. When people in marginalized groups tell you about harassment or hardships that they're facing because of that marginalization, believe them wholeheartedly. If you feel ignorant in some areas, feel free to ask questions, but maybe ask them to Google first. Trust me, I've asked Google some pretty weird things. It's never offended, and it always has some sort of answer. It's not anyone's responsibility to be your personal tutor on social issues, especially if you're not paying them personal tutor money. There are plenty of resources that are already out there. People who have shared their perspectives in books, articles, YouTube videos. <coughs> Find the resources that have already been laid out for you. Find the people who are already talking about this stuff online. And as an ally, you should be constantly learning. There's not the black experience or the queer experience or the experience of being a disabled person. There are so many different ways of walking through the world, being perceived by others, and living at the intersection of various identities and abilities. So even if you think you've heard everything, listen. The second thing that you can do to be a good ally is to uplift marginalized voices. Retweet them, mention them to your friends, highlight them, spotlight them, feature them, hire them, and hire them into positions of authority where they feel empowered to voice their concerns and act on them. Consult with people of color and trans people and neurodiverse people and then pay them for their time because consulting is a job. Wherever you can, bring diverse people into the conversation. A third thing you can do as an ally is speak up. When you see injustice, when you hear someone being bigoted, call them on their BS. Yeah, it may make you uncomfortable having to point out that someone's being racist, but imagine how uncomfortable black and brown people feel having to live with that crap every day. It can even be easier to call something out if it's not being directed at you and challenging your very existence. As an ally, you can take that burden off of someone who is already hurting. And if you remain neutral in that sort of situation, you're not an ally. 
you're not helping. Some people also worry about it being not their place to, for example, speak of issues of race if they're white. But speaking up about injustice isn't the same as speaking for a marginalized group. It is everyone's place to call out problematic behavior, especially since as an ally, you're in a position of privilege and have less fear of retaliation. White people who are slightly racist are more likely to listen to other white people. So as a white ally, it's on you to get your people. Go get your mans. Whose mans is this? Your relatives are likely to listen to you because they usually care about you at least a little bit and you kind of can't avoid them. So when you're sitting around the table and your auntie acts like people can't be bisexual, call her on it. That is your role as an ally. Bring a supportive voice to the table at tables where I'm never invited to sit. Reach your communities that I don't have access to. Use your privilege to speak where other people would be silenced. Another thing you can do as an ally is to respect safe spaces. Everyone wants to come home at the end of the day. Sure, I may be up for academic debate of politics and social issues, but there are some times when I don't want to be challenged. I don't want to always have to be playing defense. Sometimes I just want to be around other like-minded people with similar experiences who get it. It's empowering, it's strengthening, it's emotionally enriching to be able to fellowship with people without judgments or pretenses or awkward questions just from being who you are. Don't take issue with people coming together around their identity, especially since if you're in the dominant culture, you probably get to do it all the time without even trying. Respect that there's Pride Month, respect that there's Black History Month, and realize that as an ally, the world is already suited to you in that respect. If you're straight and cis, you've probably never feared being threatened for expressing your gender or felt like you needed to hide your sexuality. If you're white living in a dominantly white country, you've probably always seen people who share your heritage in the history books. If you're able-bodied and neurotypical, you probably have never been stopped from entering a common space because it's inaccessible or had to retreat from a common space because it's overwhelming. Respect the spaces and times of year where people who are usually sidelined get to take center stage. If you're an ally, you'll be fine with the fact that this is not about you, and sometimes that means politely excusing yourself from spaces meant specifically for marginalized groups. The fifth thing that you can do as an ally is to get to work. Yeah, you gotta do the work. Work, 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 work. Use your strengths, your access, your resources to help the cause. Protests can be great, but we're not all meant for marching in the streets. You can call people in the government. You can financially support community programs. You can volunteer for supportive organizations. If you're a lawyer, you can give pro bono counsel. If you're a doctor, you can get involved in a clinic. Whatever you do can probably be used to do good for marginalized communities. And if you want more ideas on quick action steps you can take, check out the video I did on the resist challenge a while back. Being an ally is an active process and it's not something that you bestow upon yourself. You don't just get to say, I'm not transphobic or homophobic or racist, therefore I'm an ally. Check. We are always unlearning the prejudices we've been socialized in and we're all problematic in our different ways. True allyship involves valuing people with experiences different from ours, learning about our privileges and natural prejudices, and working to make the world more equitable in spite of them. Hello, my name is Rachel Cargill. I'm a public academic activist, writer, and lecturer, and I am very happy to be here tonight. I won't take up too much of your time this evening. Tonight, I invite you to join me in community and conversation about the state of our existence in America. This talk is going to come to you in three distinct parts. First, we will honor and acknowledge the lives lost in the last several days that have reignited the revolutionary action we are not backing down from. We will unpack the dynamics at play. Both the actions of the oppressor and the oppressed will be discussed to offer clarity and unwhitewashed lens into what we are experiencing. Lastly, we will talk about the work ahead. 
There is so much to be done. And I hope that you will join me and the hundreds of thousands of Black people who are demanding our justice, our freedom, and our liberation from the hands of the white supremacist police state of the United States of America. I cannot move forward without speaking directly to the Black community who has joined us here tonight. Black America, I see you. You are seen, heard, and affirmed in your anger, in your sadness, in your rage, in your fear, and in your deepest desires to have the ease, rest, and safety that you are deserving of as human beings. Within the last several weeks, we have had to hashtag the names of far too many Black lives who were taken away from us due to the clinging grip of white supremacy. But this is nothing new for the United States of America, a country that was founded on the principles of enslavement and settler colonialism, displacement and murder. A country who has made it clear that their commitment to freedom does not apply to all. This conversation also cannot begin without addressing the ways that racism is not just a symptom of American life. No, it is a value of whiteness that was braided into the fabric of what the, of what the American revolutionaries built. What we have seen over the last several weeks has been yet another launching point for critical conversation about racism in the US. And with the powerful and bold action of those on the ground, conversations have led to uprisings and protests. Our cries for justice and for change, a relentless reminder that we will not be silenced while the police continue to enact violence on black people from coast to coast. So what is revolution? It is defined as an overthrow of social order in favor of a new system. Throughout history, uprisings and revolutions have been seen and celebrated in various societies. The Haitian Revolution, Watts Rebellion, the 1992 Rodney King riots. I hope that you take the time to read into each of these instances of organizing and powerful resistance to develop an inspiration for being part of the revolution that we are heading toward today. Revolutions are responses from communities of distress. It is the manifestation of fear, anger, and the unacceptance that no longer is able to be held in the bodies of those who are seeking freedom and liberation. Our whitewashed history books, our racist institutions and industrial complexes, and our curated media have portrayed a very particular lens of who gets to have a revolution and who does not. Who gets to make demands for their justice and who does not. Of who gets to live and who does not. It is imperative that we look critically into the language used to describe what happens when people are demanding their rights and the differences in how black freedom movements and white demands for civility are depicted. On April 16th, large groups of white men armed with rifles were peacefully allowed access into the Michigan State Capitol with their demand to not have to deal with the oppression of COVID-19 public health measures of social distancing and stay at home orders. Your president addressed this with the words, quote, the governor should give a little and put out the fire. 
These are very good people, but they are angry. They want their lives back again, safely. See them, talk to them, make them a deal, end quote. Earlier this week on May 26th, as protesters were attacked with tear gas and rubber bullets at the hands of the National Guard in response to their uprising and protests against the police murder of George Floyd, your president said this, quote, those thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd and I won't let it happen. Just spoke to Governor Ten Walls and told him that the military is fine, it, that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty and we will assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts, end quote. This nauseating tactic of collective gaslighting of the black community is not new. White America has always had to find a way to justify the way it treats black bodies again and again. White supremacy itself is simply a myth constructed out of the desperate need that white people have to justify their vicious, violent, and dehumanizing actions toward colonized peoples over history and today. Things like the harmful concepts of biological inferiority, historically taught in American medical colleges that led to black bodies being experimented on for gynecological innovation. Things like natural order and manifest destiny, these delusional ideas that whiteness exists as a moral compass, as the norm, as the default of humanity, while everything else is the other. We also see manifestations of this within the concept of white saviorism that constantly shows up in industries like adoption, education, and philanthropy. These ideas and concepts are the foundation of American thought and the American conscious. What is happening today, what we are seeing in these brutal murders by the American police force, what we are seeing in the attempted murders by white women who call the police as their customer service line to remove the black people they don't wanna to have to deal with. These are all manifestations of the same things this country has exhibited in ways both old and new generation after generation. We have holidays that celebrate the courageous acts of American Revolutionary War heroes. Yet when the word revolution comes out of a black mouth, it is taken in offense and met with confusion about how we could possibly suggest anything other than to march quietly, to protest peacefully. That is what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called negative peace, which is simply the absence of tension versus a positive peace which is the presence of justice. What is peace when the only people who get to rest in it are those with white skin? Simply another manifestation of the white supremacy begging for its comfort even at the cost of seeing fellow Americans murdered again and again. This is a collective form of gaslighting. The ways that the American government held up by the passiveness and complacency of the various demographics of the American people who benefit, maintain the comfort of white supremacy. And this must be disrupted. I must be clear here, the call for revolution is in no way a call for switching of places with whiteness. It is not a desire to match the morals that white supremacy has projected. It is not a desire to oppress or to dominate. 
The call for the Black Revolution is one of being able to stay alive and to be well. Being able to have our human rights respected, being able to exist in the world without the weight of white supremacy having such heaviness that we can barely maneuver without fear or frustration. Our revolution is one of liberation, one of community value, one of Black joy, of Black ease, of Black lives mattering. How will you show up in this time of human history? How will you tell the story to your grandchildren about what action you took during the civil unrest that happened in the year 2020? How will you show up not just as an ally, but as an accomplice to upend the systems that are quite frankly, killing us all? There are several ways to be a part of the solution. Everyone has capabilities that must be put into action immediately. There are educators, there are organizers, there are activists, there are mobilizers, there are fundraisers, there are artists, there are those who redistribute the resources they have to the people who need it most. There is you, there is you, there is you. I teach from a framework I developed critical knowledge plus radical empathy plus intentional action. I suggest that you tap into each part of this equation to give yourself a more grounded approach to being involved in the, in the revolutionary change we are seeking today. By critical knowledge, I mean taking the time to seek out and pull from credible sources to get a real understanding of what is happening and what it stems from. Too often in this country, the voices of the marginalized are spoken for at the hands of white academics, white journalists, and white media outlets. The Black community has a deeply dedicated community of writers, artists, and creatives sharing our story. Take time to seek them out and hear them and affirm their realities. The next aspect is radical empathy. This moves past the passive empathy that we are often taught that usually ends when we utter the words, I feel you. This is an empathy that moves past just having the ability to understand or share the experiences of others. It is a radical empathy that calls you to hold yourself accountable for how you play into the pain of others. This is a critical aspect of the equation that you cannot ignore. Lastly, intentional action. Tonight, I'm going to offer action steps you can take right now to make a difference. We all exist with various levels of access, privilege, platform, ability, and the like. I encourage you to glean from those suggestions in every possible way you are personally able to take action. And then hold your communities accountable for doing the same. It is not enough to feel sad. It is not enough to be shocked. It is not enough to wonder how this could have happened again. Indeed, it is offensive for you to approach the Black community and say, I had no idea. It's offensive for anyone to disregard the blatant, the blatant ways that Black lives are being murdered and discarded across the country. With this public address, I've developed a syllabus of sorts that will guide you through applying the knowledge, empathy, and action framework I suggested. 
but I'd like to touch on three actionable things that you can do right now. Take time tonight to research which civil rights and social justice organizations in your local community are doing the work. Grassroots organizations are often on the front lines of doing this work on small and large scales. We must use our resources to support these people who have trained and made it their lives work to fight for justice. Next, work to understand the value of calling for the defunding of your local police departments and instead pushing those resources to be redistributed into community organizations. Local and state governments have continued to divest from our people and our communities while they streamline resources to the militarized state police. The police tout solidarity with each other in regard to all things except the ways their uniformed brothers are murdering Black bodies. These are ways that we can hold these systems comprised of just people accountable for how they are betraying their duty to serve and protect. Next, for those who are part of companies and organizations, large and small, I implore you, I implore you to hold your employers and your establishments accountable. If they are benefiting from Black dollars but not intentional about protecting Black lives, we must say no more. There is no room for being passive in the name of capitalism. This includes the academic sector, the fashion industry, the music industry, the nonprofit sector, and so on. We must demand people over property, people over products, people over profit. I often remind my readers that anti-racism work is not self-improvement work for the white community. This work does not end after white people feel better about what they did. This work ends only when Black people have justice in every vein that white supremacy has found to oppress. This includes everything from disproportionate maternal mortality to the preschool to prison pipeline, to the adultification of our Black children, to housing discrimination, to voter suppression, to the prison industrial complex, to police brutality. My hope is that this address offers you critical language and a critical lens through which you can show up. Action must be taken now. Accountability must be had now. Change must be made now. There are lives depending on it. Hello, tech community. Welcome back for another conversation. Um, it's a big one today, as big as they get. You know, when we created this Build Back Better series, our thought was how could we address issues arising out of the pandemic? How could we imagine building back from that? Um, but the events of this past week, the horrific death of George Floyd and the daily protests that have followed, I mean, they provided a new urgency, which we, of course, simply have to address. I mean, can we build back better from this? I think before we can even start to answer that question, we just have to seek to understand the immensity of this moment. Yeah, that's, that's right, Chris. Right now, so many people in the United States and beyond are grappling with feelings of anger and frustration, deep, deep sadness and, and really helplessness. Um, you know, no matter who you are, uh, you have questions about what to do now, how to make things better. 
And uh, as we've seen violence like this unfold for many, many years, what is the path forward? So uh, we're joined today by a group of activists, organizers and leaders known for their crucial work in social justice and civil rights. Uh, we're so grateful to have them here to engage in a discussion about racial injustice in America, the unbearable acts of violence that we've, the acts of violence against the black community that we've witnessed. Um, the dangers to a nation riven by anger and fear and how on earth we can move forward from this to something better. So first, each of our four guests will share their thoughts on how we move forward from this moment. And then we'll engage as a group, including you, the TED community. And we'd like to thank our partner, the Project Management Institute. Their generous support has helped make today's interviews possible. And of course, as Chris mentioned, we want you to take part in the conversation. So please share your questions using our Ask a Question feature and continue to share your thoughts in the discussion thread. Thanks, Whitney. Okay, let's, let's get this moving. Um, our first guest. Dr. Philip Atiba Goff is the founder of and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. They work with police departments across America, including in Minneapolis, to seek measurable responses to racial bias. Phil, I can scarcely imagine how distressing the last week must have been for you. Welcome and over to you for your opening comments. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, this week has been a gut punch to anybody who felt like we could be making progress in the way that we put forward public safety that empowers particularly vulnerable communities. Um, we started working in Minneapolis about five years ago. Uh, at the time, it was like most major cities in the United States, a, a, a department that had a long history of unaccounted for violence from law enforcement targeting the most vulnerable black communities. And we tried to put uh, into place a number of things that we know work. Um, change the culture so that the culture can be accountable to the values of the community. And what we saw was small but measurable progress. We always knew with small and measurable progress that your one tragic incident from going back to ground zero. But the events of the last week and a half haven't brought us back to ground zero. They've torched ground zero and we've dug a hole that we have to dig ourselves out of. What I hear from police chiefs who call me, from activists I talk to, from folks in, in the communities that are on, literally on fire right now, I hear folks saying, I had one activist say to me, that the pain that he was feeling was too large to fit into his body. And without thinking about it, I said right back, that's because it's too large to fit into a lifetime. What we're seeing isn't just the response to one gruesome, cruel, public execution, a, a lynching. It's not just the reaction to three of them, Ahmaud Arbery, Rihanna Taylor, um, <clears throat> and then George Floyd. What we're seeing is the bill come due for the unpaid debts that this country owes to its black residents. 
And it comes due usually every 20 to 30 years. It was Ferguson just six years ago, but about 30 years before that, it was in the streets of Los Angeles after the verdict that exonerated the police that beat Rodney King on video. It was Newark, it was Watts, it was Chicago, it was Tulsa, it was Chicago again. If we don't take a full accounting of these debts that are owed, then we're gonna keep paying it. Part of what I've been experiencing in the last week and a half and what I've been sharing with the people who do this work, who are serious about it, is the, the acknowledgement, the soul-crushing reality that at some point, when things stop being on fire, the cameras are gonna turn to something else. And the history that we have in this country is not just a history of vicious neglect and targeted abuse of black communities. It's also one where we lose our attention for it. And what that means for communities like in Baton Rouge, where those who still grieve Alton Sterling, and in Baltimore, for those who are still grieving Freddie Gray, is that there is not just a chance, there's a likelihood that we are a month or two months out from this with no more to show for it than what we had to show after Michael Brown Jr. And holding the weight of that individually and collectively is just too much. It's just too heavy a load for a person or a people or a generation to hold up. What we're seeing is the unrepented sins, the unpaid debts. And so the solution can't just be that we fix policing. It can't be only incremental reform. It can't be only systems of accountability to catch cops after they've killed somebody. Because there's no such thing as justice for George Floyd. There's maybe accountability. There's maybe some relief from the people who are still around who loved him for his daughter who spoke out yesterday and said, my daddy changed the world. There won't be justice for a man who's dead when he didn't have to be. But we're not gonna get to where we need to go just by reforming police. So in addition to the work that CPE is known for with the data, we have been encouraging departments and cities to take the money that should be going to invest in communities and take it from police budgets, bring it to the communities. People ask, well, what could it possibly look like? How could we imagine it? And I tell people, there is a place where we do this in the United States right now. We've all heard about it, whispered. Some of us have even been there. Some of us live there. The place is called the suburbs, where we already have enough resources to give to people so they don't need the police for public safety in the first place. If someone has a substance abuse issue, they can go to a clinic. If somebody has a medical issue, they can go, they've got insurance, they can go to a hospital. If there's a domestic dispute, they have friends, they have support. Right? You don't need to enter a badge and a gun into it. If we hadn't disinvested from all the public resources that were available in communities that most needed those, we wouldn't need police in the first place. And many have been arguing even more loudly recently that we don't. If we would just take the money that we use to punish and instead invest it in the promise and the genius of the community that could be there. So I don't know all the ways we're going to get there. I know it's going to take everything and. It's gonna need the kind of systemic change and the management tools that we traditionally offer. And it's also gonna need a quantum change in the way that we think about public safety. But mostly this isn't just a policing problem.
This is the unpaid debts that are owed to black America. The bill is coming due and we need to start getting an accounting together so we're not just paying off the interest of the damn thing. Thank you, Phil. Rashad Robinson is the president of Color of Change. It's a, a civil rights organization that advocates for racial justice for the black community. To date, more than 4 million people have signed their petition to arrest the officers involved in the murder of George Floyd. And of course, one was arrested last week. Thank you so much for being with us, Rashad. Welcome. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's an opportunity that I'm taking today to just tell you about how you can get involved, how you can take action and because right now, strategic action is critical for all of us to do the work to change the rules that far too often keep the systems in place that hold us back. Make no mistake, the criminal justice system is not broken. It is operating exactly the way it was designed. It, at every single level, the criminal justice system is not about providing justice, but about ensuring that certain uh, people, certain communities are protected while other communities are violated. And so I wanna talk a little bit of today about color of change, about activism, about the work that's happening on the ground from other organizations all around the country and the way that you can channel this energy. What we talk about at Color of Change is how do you channel presence into power. And far too often we mistake presence and visibility for power. Presence uh, retweets the stories of the movement. People feeling passionate about change um, can sometimes make us feel like change is inevitable, but power is actually the ability to change the rules. And right now, everyday people are taking action. And what we're trying to channel that energy into is a couple of things. First is a whole set of demands at the federal level and at the local level. Um, as Phil described, that policing, um, you know, um, operates on many different um, channels. And what we need to recognize is that while there are a lot of things that can happen at the federal level, locally all around the country, um, there are decisions that are being made in communities around how policing is executed, where community needs to hold a deeper level of accountability. At the state level, we need new laws. So at Color of Change, we've built a whole platform around a set of demands and are working to build more energy of everyday people to take action. We're fighting for justice for Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. We're also fighting for justice for other folks whose names that you haven't heard, Nina Pop and others, whose, whose stories of, in, of injustice and the relationship to the criminal justice system represent all the ways in which fighting right now um, is important. Over the last couple of years, we have worked to build a movement to hold district attorneys accountable and to change the role of district attorneys in our country. And through the Winning Justice platform at Color of Change, www.winningjustice.org, what we have worked to do is channel the energy of everyday people to take action. So for folks who are watching what's happening on TV, seeing it on their social media feeds and are outraged about what's happening in Georgia, what's happening in Tennessee, what's happening in Minnesota, you yourself probably, most likely, live in a place, in a community where you have a district attorney that will not hold police accountable, 
that will not prosecute police when they harm, hurt black folks, when they violate the laws. You live in a community where uh, police are part of the structure that is uh, racking up mass incarceration, but many other aspects of our system um, are racking up incar mass incarceration and district attorneys are at the center of it. You live in those communities and you need to do something about it. And so at winningjustice.org, we've created the only searchable national database on the 2,400 prosecutors around the country. We're building local squads and communities for folks to be able to engage around um, efforts to hold DAs accountable. We've worked with our partners across the movement, from our friends in Black Lives Matter to um, folks who are do policy work, to our friends at local ACLU chapters around the country, to build six demands, six demands that folks can get behind in terms of pushing for reform, and then we built public education material. But the only way that we work to change the way that prosecution happens in this country is that if people get involved, if people raise their voice, if people join us in pushing for real change. At the end of the day, I want people to recognize, though, and Philip talked a little bit about this, is that people don't experience issues, they experience life that the forces that hold us back are deeply interrelated. A racist criminal justice system requires a racist media culture to survive. A political inequality follows uh, economic inequality, and they all go hand in hand. And so I also want us to not take ourselves out of the equation. We likely work inside of corporations that may post symbols for Black Lives Matter one day and then support politicians that work to destroy Black Lives Matter the next day. We oftentimes are engaged in, in practices inside of our companies or in our daily lives supporting um, uh, media properties and others that are harming um, our communities or telling stories. Recently, we produced a report at Color of Change with the Norman Lear School at USC. It's called uh, Normalizing Injustice, and it can be found at changehollywood.org. And Normalizing Injustice looks at the 22 crime procedurals, those crime shows on TV, and looks at all of the ways in which they sort of create a warped perception about our view of justice. Um, they, they create sort of an incentive for the type of policing we see on the country and, and actually serve as a PR arm for law enforcement. We've been working in writers' rooms around the country to work to push folks to tell better stories, but we need folks to be both active listeners and we need folks in the industry to push back and challenge those, um, not only the structures that lead to that content coming on the air, but the proliferation across our airwaves. At the end of the day, we have an opportunity in this moment to make change. Inflection points are those moments where we have an opportunity to make huge leaps forward or the real, real threat of falling backwards. In our hands is the ability to do some incredible things about undoing so many of the injustices that have stood in the way of progress for far too long. But everyday people must get involved. We must channel that presence um, into power, and we must build the type of power that changes the rules. Racism, in so many ways, is like water pouring over a floor with holes in it. Every single, in every single way, it will find the holes. And so for us, we cannot simply accept charitable solutions to structural problems but we actually have to work for structural change. 
And so I want to end by saying one thing about how we talk about black people and how we talk about black communities in this moment. Because we have to say what we mean and we have to build the narrative that gets us to where we want to go. So far too often we talk about black communities as vulnerable. We talk about black people as vulnerable. But vulnerability is a personal trait. Black communities have been under attack. Black communities have been exploited. Black communities have been targeted. And we need to say that so we don't put the onus on fixing black families and black communities, but we put the onus on fixing the structures that have harmed us. We will say things like black people are less likely to get loans from banks instead of saying that banks are less likely to give loans to black people. This is our opportunity to build the type of progress that makes real change. And at that center of the story, we need to show and elevate the images, not just of the pain that we are facing, but of the joy, the brilliance, and the creativity that black people have brought to this country. Black people are the protagonists of this story. And we need to make sure that as we work to build a new tomorrow, we ensure that the heroes are at the center of the liberation that we all need. Thank you. Thank you, Rashad. Dr. Bernice King is the CEO of the King Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the center is a living memorial to her father, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, it's dedicated to inspiring new generations to carry his work forward. In this moment when so many are hurting, how can we better approach unity and collective healing. Dr. King, over to you. My heart is a little heavy right now because I was that six-year-old. I was five years old when my father was assassinated and he did change the world. But the tragedy is that we didn't hear what he was saying to us as a prophet to his, this nation. And his words are now reverberating back to us. Change, we all know, is necessary right now. And yet it's not easy. We know that there has to be changes in policing in this nation of ours. But I want to talk about America's choice at a greater level. The prophet said to us, we still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation. What we have witnessed over the last eight days has placed that choice before us. We have seen literally in the streets of our nation, people who have been following the path of nonviolent protest and people who have been hell-bent on destruction. Those choices are now looking at us and we have to make a choice. The history of this nation was founded in violence. In fact, my father said, America is the greatest purveyor of violence. And the only way forward is if we repent for being a nation built on violence. And I'm not just talking about physical violence. I'm talking about systemic violence. I'm talking about policy violence. I'm talking about what he spoke of, of the triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism, all violent. Albert Einstein said something to us. 
He said, we cannot solve problems on the same level of thinking in which they were created. And so if we are going to move forward, we are going to have to deconstruct these systems of violence that we have set in America, and we're going to have to reconstruct on another foundation. That foundation happens to be love and nonviolence. And so as we move forward, we can correct course if we make that choice that daddy said, nonviolent coexistence, and not continue on the pathway of violent co-annihilation. So what does that look like? That, that looks like some deconstruction work in order to get to the construction. We have to deconstruct our thinking. We got to deconstruct the way in which we see people and deconstruct the way in which we operate, practice, and engage and set policy. And so I believe that there's a lot of heart, H-E-A-R-T work to do in the midst of all the H-A-R-D, hard work to do. Because heart work is hard work. One of the things we have to do is we have to ensure that everyone, especially my white brothers and sisters, have to engage in the heart work, the anti-racism work in our hearts. No one is exempt from this, especially in my uh, white community. We must do that work in our hearts, the anti-racism work. The second thing is that I encourage people to look at the nonviolence training that we do at the King Center, the KingCenter.org, so that we learn the foundation of understanding our interrelatedness and interconnectedness. That we understand our loyalties and our commitments and our policy making can no longer be devoted to one group of people, but has to be devoted to the, the greater good of all people. And so I'm inviting people to even join us on our online protest that's happening uh, every night at 7 o'clock p.m. on the King Center Facebook page, because so many people have things that they want to express and contribute to this. We all have to change and have to make a choice. It is a choice to change the direction that we have been going. We need a revolution of values in this country. That's what my daddy said. He changed the world. He changed hearts. And now, what has happened over the last seven, eight years and through history, we have to change course. And we all have to participate in changing America with a true revolution of values where people are at the center and not profit, where morality is at the center and not our military might. America does have a choice. We can either choose to go down continually that path of destruction, or we can choose nonviolent coexistence.
And as my mother said, struggle is a never ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. Every generation is called to this freedom struggle. You as a person may want to exempt yourself, but every generation is called. And so I encourage corporations in America to start doing anti-racism work within corporate America. I encourage every industry to start doing anti-racism work and pick up the banner of understanding nonviolent change personally and from a social change perspective. We can do this. We can make the right choice to ultimately build the beloved community. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. King. Anthony Romero is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union. As one of the nation's oldest social justice organizations, the ACLU has advocated for racial equality and shown deep support to the black community in moments of crisis. And in moments like these, black voices are almost always the loudest and at times the silence from our non-black white brothers, non-black brothers and sisters rather, um, can feel deafening. How we can bring our allies into the mix to better support um, ending systemic violence and racism against the black community is a question uh, top of mind for a lot of us. Anthony, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you, Chris, for inviting me to join this TED community. Uh, I think community is really important right now. Uh, with so many of us feeling the trepidation, the weariness, the anger, the fear, the frustration, the terrorism that we've experienced in our communities, this is a time to huddle uh, around a virtual campfire with your posse, with your family, with your loved ones, with your network, it's not a time to be isolated or alone. And I think for allies in this struggle, uh, those of us who don't live this experience every day, uh, it is time for us to lean in. Uh, you can't change the channel. You can't tune out. You can't say, this is too hard. It is not that hard for us to listen and learn and heed. It is the only way we're gonna build, build out of this by hearing the voices of Rashad and Phil and Dr. King, by hearing the voices of our neighbors and loved ones, by hearing the voices on Twitter, people who we don't know. Uh, and so white communities and allied organizations need to pay even closer attention. This is the test of your character. How willing are you willing to lean in and to engage? For me, I, I have, um, these, these have been really hard couple of weeks. Uh, I feel like this is, really a test of whether or not we really believe in the American experiment. Do we really believe it? Do we really believe that out of many, one, that a country with no unifying language, no unifying culture, no unifying religion, can we really become one people, all equal before the law, all bound together with belief in the rule of law? Do we really believe that or do we just think a nice saying to see on the back of a, of a paper dollar. And for me, this is a referendum on the American experiment on whether we really believe. And the future is in our hands. And this is not like other crises. I've been the head of the ACLU for 
almost 20 years. I feel like I've seen it all. This is different. And this is different because it is cumulative, like Phil and Rashad and Dr. King told us. This is centuries of systemic discrimination. And the bill has come due. And it will continue to be due. And we will pay unless we really do something quite different. I have been scratching my head at the ACLU for the last week. We've been at this for 100 years. My organization's been working on this from its inception. 1931, we were involved with this report about lawlessness and and law enforcement. That was our first report that we got behind in 1931. We opened up our first storefronts after the, the riots in Watts so that we could bring legal services and lawyers to the community so they could demand justice from the police departments. You know, we brought Miranda, you know, the right to remain silent. We brought Gideon, the right to a court-appointed attorney if you can't afford one. But the real thing is we're going to go after those budgets. And when you look at the fact that we spend $100 million on policing, more than incarceration, that the city of Minneapolis spent 30% of their budget on policing. The city of Oakland, 41% on policing. That when you have New York City Police Department spends more money on policing than it does on housing and preservation development, community youth services, homelessness. We're going after the money. And that's, that's hardcore advocacy. Bills drop in local legislatures to cut the funding to police, to stop these programs that give the federal Uh, military surplus to police departments, so they become like little mini armies. These don't look like police officers. These look like standing armies, and the enemy are communities of color. So we need to take away their toys. We need to cut their budgets. We need to shrink the police infrastructure so that we can get police out of the quotidian lives of people of color and communities of color. The, The ubiquitousness of police enforcement on things that the police do not have a role, should not have a role to play. People do not, should not lose their lives over whether or not a cigarette pack has the proper tax stamp or whether a $20 bill was forged or not. That's not worthy of spending our dollars on police. Get them out of that business. Let's focus on the most important and the most serious of crimes, and that's it. That's it. We're going to de-police our communities, shrink those budgets, We're going to reinvest those monies in local communities. It will be like water on stone campaigns in local legislatures, local city councils. We'll have report cards for people who talk out of both sides of their mouths and say, we believe in police reform, and yet they're still going to vote for 30 or 40 percent for the police. Mm -mm. We're going to put that right to the public. And I think we just have to stay at it because I think that's the only way we can go get at this in a different way, because much of what we tried to do is just simply not working. You know, with that, I I struggle with how do you find the optimism in this moment? Because you have to find the optimism. You have to find the way that can still think that even though in the face of so many setbacks, there's been change. It's been too little, too slow, not enough. We need to kind of rocket boost it. But you can't lose sight of the optimism. And... You know, I've been thinking about who are the folks who inspire me, Dr. King's father, of course, and the words of Rashad and Patrice Cullors and others have inspired me. But I found inspiration in the words of a kind of a a scholar I really don't like very much, Sam Huntington, kind of often criticized as being a conservative, a racist. 
But sometimes you can find inspiration even in your enemy's words. And in his, one of his books, which I pulled off the shelf I have, it's just, he writes about how America is a disappointment because it failed to live up to its aspirations. And he actually ta started talking about it as America is a failure because it doesn't live up to its ideals. But it's not a failure. It's not a bunch of lies. It's a disappointment. And in the disappointment also is the fact that there's hope. I'm paraphrasing it, but I think we have to kind of wrap all of that together and think about the disappointment and the hope and the resolve to do better. And we need to listen and lean in. And I thank the TED community. I thank Dr. King. I thank Rashad. I thank Phil. And uh, thank you. Wow. Thank you to all four of you. That was astonishing. Um, I guess we're, we're bringing everyone back now to um, have a conversation among us to ask some questions from our community. I hope you're entering those questions. Um, so I don't know whether we can bring back um, our guests onto the, the screen at this point. Um, <laughs> welcome back. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start, let me start with a, a question uh, to you, Dr. King. I was so inspired by what you said. Um, your, your father, of course, also deeply understood the anger that leads to protests. I, I think he, he said that protests are the language of the unheard. Um, and I'm wondering what, what you would say to someone right now who is angered beyond measure by what's happened and also sees this could be the moment, you know, like they, 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 someone who believes that the system is so fundamentally broken that our best choice is to tear it down, that that is actually, that, that this may be a one, once in a generational moment to do that. Um, and, uh, and so to actually believe that protests, including violent protests, actually is the way right now. What would you say to someone who felt that? First, I just wanted to make uh, just a slight correction. You said riots are the language of the unheard. Um, I apologize. But I apologize. No, that's but it's, that, 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 is, that is the point even more powerfully. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, protest we must, and we must continue to always protest. Um, to keep the issues um, and the awareness before people. But, um, you know, when a person is angry, sometimes it's hard to reach them. Uh, I've been on that journey. Um, I was at a stage in my life where I was so angry, I wanted to destroy. And I'm the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and grew up in a household of love and nonviolence and forgiveness. Um, um, and I had to go through that journey. I was surrounded by... Uh, the right kind of influences, fortunately, because that would have been a sad story. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's really um, allowing ourselves to hear the anger and uh, allowing the space for the anger, but also trying to help uh, young people uh, rechannel that that energy. And and we've got to start ensuring that we connect them to some of the work that has been and, and, and now is elevated to another place, Color Change, the work that you're doing, the ACLU, the work that they're doing, 
um, because sometimes there's this disconnection that intensifies the emotion and makes you feel helpless. But if you can channel that anger, connect it with action that is, is toward creating the social and economic um, change, then it begins to build you up um, and then you can begin to become more constructive with the anger. Great. We have some, some questions that are coming in from our community, but before we do that, you all um, shared such powerful, meaningful statements right now. And um, many of you touched on the fact that this is not the first time that we're experiencing this, the, the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. This is one of, these are three of many, many instances just like this. And I, I'd love to hear you all address what has sort of brought us to this boiling point, to what has contributed to this moment where we're now experiencing things as, Anthony, as you said, uh, that feels so much worse than, than other, other moments. And that's to anyone who feels uh, you know, comfortable to sort of take that question. Rashad, I want to hear you. I think I, I, I wanted to say something yeah. real quick to that. I, I, think, I think we've always been at that moment. Um, mm. But this moment is different because of the void in leadership. Um, there's no real moral voice in our country. Um, and the person who sits in the office of the presidency um, is not, um, you know, leading in the right way. And so it is, and, and has kind of, you know, not kind of, has given license to certain things. Um, and, and so now it's, you know, he's, he's lit the fires. I, you know, the thing I'll add, the, 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 thing, the thing I'll add here is that, you know, I think a couple of things. For the last couple of months, we have been both seeing and experiencing all of the ways that this country's um, decisions of underinvestment, of targeting black communities has um, been killing black people through COVID. And while we've been in our homes, um, we have also been watching how the media has blamed us as we have been the essential workers um, in so many places and trying to um, ensure that um, this country keeps going. We've watched uh, white men with guns show up to capitals with uh, demanding basically black and brown people go back to work. And then we see this eight minute video with the police officer um, with his knee on someone's neck after seeing that video of Ahmaud Arbery and hearing the story of Breonna Taylor. And we see him looking in the camera, basically knowing that America was not going to punish him. And what I think is that it's just enough is enough that people didn't feel that, that they had a channel for that outrage. And, and because people had been inside and because people had been experiencing all the ways in which the structures um, had um, also been um, colluding to kill us, that what we're seeing is an is a, is a alignment of all of those things where people are making demands that are much bigger and much bolder than before. And we recognize that while we don't have leadership at the federal level, we also have to recognize that um, no political party um, can say that they have been 100, neither political party can say they've been 100% on the right side of all these issues. And so people are mobilizing, they are fighting back and like never before. And in some ways people are unwilling to accept answers like just go vote or just participate in the process. Because we recognize that Black people have been voting. Black people have been part of voting and part of ensuring that. And so that, I think, is why this moment feels so much different, combined with, for the last seven years, 
since Trayvon, we have seen the growth of a new movement of activists and leaders all around the country who are also in a very different place um, to be able to move um, the needle on so much of what's possible. We have a, a question here from um, Genesis B. Um, if we can get that up here. Uh, here in Mississippi, the police is synonymous with the Klan historically. How do we, how do we purge law enforcement of white supremacists? So I, I guess that that's partially to me, um, uh, being the psychologist of bias. Um, I'll say that uh, just yesterday, we had an officer in Denver who posted on social media himself and two other officers saying, let's go start a riot. He was fired that day. I worry about all the officers that the FBI has now for almost half a decade been warning us um, are being in law enforcement and unions are being infiltrated by white supremacists. Um, and all the officers that have social media accounts, but they're private. Um, you know, the Invisible Institute has put some things forward. Um, we're not talking seriously about the domestic terrorism threat that white supremacy represents. So the first thing we got to do is we got to take it seriously. We have to actually say out loud, and I can't believe that on a day like today, on a week like this week, I have to say out loud, white supremacy is alive and well and a driving force of American politics. This shouldn't be controversial. I shouldn't be looking to forward to getting hate mail in my inbox for it, yeah. but that's the reality. So the first thing, first part of, of solving a problem is acknowledging that it exists. But the second thing is we need to arm municipalities, that's law enforcement, but even more so communities, with the ability to take action when someone violates their values. Right now, I, I think about the, the case in Philadelphia where um, Charles Ramsey, when he was uh, uh, chief there, was commissioner there, fired six officers, right? Concerns about racial bias and concerns about um, uh, uh, police brutality. And those six officers were back on the same job inside of three months. We now have a law enforcement system that says you can lose your job in one jurisdiction and get the same job as law enforcement in another jurisdiction. And without, without the uh, uh, national registry and the capacity for law enforcement to, to make different decisions, we're going to have this exact problem, not just in Mississippi, but in Minneapolis and Louisville, in New York and L.A. So how much of the, of the problem st stems from the fact that uh, police unions have a huge amount of power to protect and sometimes reinstate so-called bad apple officers? Yeah, so I, I'm getting this question a lot. And police unions are one of the most powerful labor forces in the United States and are unique within the labor movement. Right. So it's police unions and teachers unions are the two largest and could not be two different uh, uh, sets uh, groups of, of folks. Um, when I talk to union leadership, that's the leadership that wants to talk to Dr. Blackenstein, right? When I talk to union leadership, what they say is no one hates a bad officer more than a good officer. But the union contracts and the union negotiations don't look like that's true. What they look like is anybody gets in trouble and the union's only job is to make sure whatever officer is in trouble gets to maintain their job. The perverse incentive here is that when people run for union leadership, no one can run saying these people shouldn't be in the union. It's very hard to do that. What you can run on is say this person didn't protect you enough, right? I'll protect you even more. The bigots, I'll protect even them. So we have this perverse incentive where union leadership ends up not really representing the values even of, of the, the rest of the union members. 
but they have massive outsized negotiating power. So yes, engaging with an appropriate right sizing of uh, labor protections for folks whose jobs are difficult, but who should not be protected from the basic values of human rights, human dignity, and public safety. It's, it's got to be part of the process. I mean, when, when unions are negotiating a two-year ban on keeping of records so that there's no ability even to trace what's happening in the state of California, historically in terms of police misconduct, that's not in the interest of public safety, public legitimacy, or our democracy. Yeah, the, the thing I would add, Chris, is that I think the labor union piece is a, is a critically important one to think through. Because I think, like Phil said, it's, it, they are a key part of the puzzle that's going to we have to solve for. And, you know, it's frustrating when you look at a place like Minneapolis, that Phil knows better than I, but when uh, Mayor Jacob Fry, the one who's on TV all the time, saying all, you know, many of the right things that you want an elected official to say at times like this, when he banned his police department from attending the warrior training that was being offered. It was the Minneapolis Police Federation, the local union that defied him and sent their police to the training. And so we need to really be clear that we need to have the police forces under civilian control. I know this sounds so elementary. I feel like I'm talking about a Latin American kind of totalitarian context, but we need to kind of exert civilian control of our police in a way that we have yet not been able to think through. And a key part of that is the labor unions of the police. And there are moments when you can find common ground. When we brought one of our COVID-related lawsuits to deal with the uh, outbreak of the pandemic in a Maryland jail, we worked really hard. I, I worked the phones with the head of police uh, unions. We got one of the local unions to serve as plaintiff in our lawsuit. Because we understood that the incarcerated folks who were being denied access to masks and social distancing and the conditions and lack of testing and lack of PPE, that the people who were also going to be in harm's way were going to be the guards as well. And they were going to be the kind of vectors communicating the, the disease out into the community. So if you can find ways of kind of bringing that relationship, but make no mistake, when you go after their budgets and you start taking away their kind of their munitions and their and their seat at the budgeting table, oh, are you going to have a battle on your hands, right? And we have to think about also, as we shrink the budgets for police, how do we redeploy people in the police departments to other meaningful jobs, right? Because you can't just throw them out on the street and say, you're on your own, you're homeless, good luck to you. That's not a, that's not a, a way to deal with redemption. Um, so we have to really think about all these pieces in a much more co co cohesive way. We have another question here from the audience, yeah, um, from Paul Rucker. Uh, the end of summer of 1919, and I think we actually just lost it, was followed by the Tulsa Race Massacre, the Johnson Reed Anti-Immigration Act of 1924, and also the rise of the KKK. Is there a possibility that white supremacy will get stronger if we don't seize this opportunity? Rashad, I think this might be something that would be great to hear your perspective on working so deeply in activism. I'm having a little trouble hearing. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can uh, so the uh, can, no, it's okay. Can you can you read the uh, question on the screen, Rashad? It's a, oh oh, I heard that. I heard you. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I think it might just be my mic is having some some issues here, but uh, yes. Yeah, just is there a possibility that white supremacy will get stronger if we don't seize this opportunity? Yeah. 
Yes. Um, absolutely, yes. Um, you know, well, like, like, to be clear, right, if we don't have the right diagnosis of white supremacy, if we think of white supremacy as just hoods, if we think of white supremacy as, um, as just folks who are um, operating, um, you know, with, uh, you know, in some of these sort of underground networks that have grown, if we're just thinking about white supremacy and white nationalism as people who march with tiki torches in Charlottesville, then we will really mistake all the ways in which our systems and structures have white supremacy embedded and allow for, um, something like a Tulsa race massacre to happen, something like um, anti-immigration to happen, but on a day-to-day -day basis, um, allow for um, the targeting of black communities through predatory practices by banks, the targeting of black communities through predatory practices like bail, um, a whole set of systems that um, can be produced uh, day in and day out. Um, we um, live in a country where the rules are far too often designed in ways that, that create a caste system, that create a different standard um, for some over others. And so when I talked about the inflection point, right, of this moment where something could really go forward or something could turn backwards, um, we are seeing this right now with this current president. And as we look at what could potentially happening with the next election, we have to be very we have to be very clear that Donald Trump doesn't just operate on his own. He's enabled by big corporations who benefit from him being in office and so continue to turn a blind eye to the, all the things that he does. They may post Black Lives Matter, but they show up to the White House and engage with Donald Trump. And then we have a whole set of politicians that may sometimes say that he said something that was wrong, but then um, allow for, but support his platform in other ways. Um, you know, true co-conspiracy in the effort to dismantle white supremacy and white nationalism is not a thing that people can do on vacation. It is a 365-day project of us constantly working to dismantle all of the structures that have been put in harm's way. The thing, I, the final thing I will just add about, because someone mentioned about police unions, and I want to just add that part of the one of the problems with police unions, and and and, and many of us have been in this position, I think, is that. I have shown up to the table with police unions on many occasions. I remember going to the White House um, during the last administration and, and being around a table as we were talking about policing and police reform and having members of the, of, of the Fraternal Order Police uh, leadership say things like, uh, all of this talk of racial profiling is new to us. It is one thing for folks to not agree with you on the policy reforms necessary. It is another thing for people to say that our demands are too aspirational. It's another thing to be gaslit and told the problem doesn't actually exist at all. And that is what we are dealing with. And so we have to actually change the way that people see these institutions. Politicians who say that they are on the side of justice and reform can no longer take money from police-only unions and fraternal order police. Um, we actually have to create a new standard, a new litmus test of what does it mean to actually be with us. You can't just sing our songs, use our hashtags, and march in our marches if you are on the other end um, uh, supporting the structures that put us in harm's way, that literally uh, kill us. And this is the opportunity for white allies to actually stand up in new ways, to be the, to be the type of, al to do the type of allyship and the type of work that truly dismantles structures, not just provides charity. And I gotta add to that, um, we're, 
I, I, so Paul, thank you for the question. But we're in a moment where people, a lot of people are looking at what's happening on the street as if, as if a week and a half ago, we weren't in the midst of a global pandemic as the greatest news story, the biggest news story going on. One of the things I'm most worried about and have been worried about since the very beginning, what I've been talking to our chiefs about, um, who we work with is saying, you must be out of the social distancing policing game. You can't be the ones doing that. And the reason is this, we're in a moment where creating scapegoats and enemies and others is incredibly politically advantageous for at least one side. And there is a deliberate efforts to do exactly that. And we've seen that black communities are two and three and four times more likely to contract this virus, which feels like the manifestation of racial discrimination because it is. But very soon, that's gonna look like black people made bad choices and they need to stay away from us. And when that happens, that's when law enforcement gets used to regulate where black movement can be. We used to call it sundown towns. I don't know what we're gonna call it when it's around COVID but it's coming. I'm already seeing that on communities like Nextdoor and on Facebook groups of people who don't think of themselves as white supremacists, but just want the disease away and the disease has a black and brown face. So we're not only dealing with a moment of, of generational tension between black communities and law enforcement, we're dealing with a moment when people are looking for scapegoats and black people's vulnerability has always been our greatest casting note for being cast as scapegoats. So for, for, for folks who are worried about this, this is not inevitably a moment for change and reform and enlightenment and America's best values, because historically, these have been precisely the moments when regression back to white supremacy has reigned supreme. So let's not just look at everybody's signaling. I don't want to just see black, uh, black and white cops on their knees. I want to see the policies. I want to see the things that will prevent this kind of thing from moving to the next stage. Mm. Rashad, I, I want to respect the fact that I know you've got a hard stop at, uh, at one. Um, and uh, so I just want to thank you for your participation in this. If, you, if you've got a couple of final words you want to share, that would be great. And then if it's okay for the other three, I, just, I think there's just a couple other questions I'd love to, to put and continue this conversation for just a moment longer, if possible. Uh, Rashad, any closing words? The, 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 thing, the thing I want to say is that now is the time for action. And I want to invite people in to join us at Color of Change, to make, to make justice real. Um, and in so many ways, you can visit us at Color of Change. You can take action five, 10, 15 years from now. We will be dealing with the impacts in the, of what we did or didn't do in this moment, how we stood up and how, and how hard we were willing to fight. And as, as the other speakers have said, now is not the time for reform around the edges. Now is time for dismantling the policies and practices that have held us back and championing solutions and new rules that will move us forward. And so we um, hope that you will do something, whether it's with us or whether it's with local organizations in your community or other groups around the country. But this is an opportunity to make change. And I believe that we can make justice real if we find the um, passion and the, uh, and the energy to work together to achieve it. So thank you all for having me. And I hope, and I hope that we have an opportunity to build not just online, but offline um, in the months to come. Thanks so much, Rashad. We're just going to ask this last Thank question um, um, of you. This one's from David Fenton. <clears throat> How can the movement unite around a clear, simple platform of policies to enshrine in legislation, like making all complaints against cops public, banning all chokeholds, ensuring independent review boards, etc.? 
And that seems like a great place for you to chime in, Dr. King, if you have some thoughts on that. I think that was to go to you, Dr. King. Oh, okay. Um, you know, this may sound um, simplistic, <laughs> uh, but it, it's it's a Nike thing. I think we have to just do it. We have to see our work as interconnected. Um, I think there's been um, efforts towards people working in that vein, but we have to intensify that. And, and in doing it, um, one of the things that my, my, my father said, and I know people sometimes get tired of hearing me say my father said, but I just think, I wish, should I say, we had really listened to him because we wouldn't be on this platform right now having this kind of conversation. But he left something with us, sort of a blueprint of where do we go from here, chaos of community, um, his book. And uh, he said, going forward, the nettlesome task is to organize our strength into compelling power. And that is so uh, key because oftentimes we organize merely around passion. Um, but people have certain areas of strength and, and talent and giftedness. And we've got to figure out how to build our, our coalitions based on um, these strengths. You know, people do different things well. Uh, and so in order to unite in an effective way that they might not elude the demand that we're making. I think that's what's going to have to, to happen. People have to do their own um, personal assessment within their organization. I call it a SWOT analysis. Um, and then that SWOT analysis has to happen across organizations so that we can make sure that we're moving in a united manner off of the strengths that each organization brings so that we can maximize the, the impact and the effectiveness to, to do things like this in terms of getting the legislation in place that is needed um, in this hour. Thanks so much. Just a, a quick uh, closing words from you, Anthony, and then from you, Phil. Anthony. You know, I would just say that what gives me hope are the young folk. Uh, you have to believe that among this group, this group of youngins, Seeing what they're seeing, living with this president, with these instincts, seeing the continued indifference that uh, mainstream communities have given to issues of racial justice or economic justice, you gotta believe that what comes out of this kind of very hot fire is something even more powerful and strong than we've ever seen before. And if, and if that's what gets me through the hard days that we're now experiencing is thinking there is another Dr. King among the youngins, Dr. King. And I have to believe that what they're seeing and what they're witnessing and their righteous indignation and their frustration and their anger is going to be miraculously a beautiful blossoming of, of a new opportunity of a new change. This, this generation will take us there. I have to believe that. Uh, our gen my generation's failed them miserably. So I'm just looking forward to the, to the new ones. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Phil. So. Thank you, Anthony. So it's a, it's it really has been a, a privilege to be on um, with you all. To um, David's question, let me say that um, a number of civil rights organizations, I, I believe the ACLU among them, um, uh, CPE, um, a number of us, uh, Center for Policing Equity, uh, and, and hundreds more have signed on to um, principles for legislation um, <clears throat> that would include eight pillars. It's been led by the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights. 
Um, and it includes uh, a federal ban on chokeholds. It includes a national registry um, for officers um, who've engaged in misconduct. I also think that it's important at this moment to get, we've got law enforcement, chiefs of major cities willing to say, if we emerge from this moment and our profession hasn't changed, then we have failed again. So it's a critical time to get behind. I would, I would direct you to the um, LCCHR's uh, website um, for the eight pillars, because I won't remember them all right now, um, and to, to start calling your local law enforcement and say, yes, own that. You should be signing on. They should be going public with letters that do all of that. But I'll also say this, for a path forward in the principles, I'll, I'll, I'll end where, we, where I started, which is that this is bigger than policing. These are the unpaid debts owed to black communities for stolen labor, owed to, owed to native communities for stolen land, for stolen culture, for years taken away and from lives lost in it. This is bigger than policing. If we don't understand the size of it, then there's no solution that's really truly poor proportional to the moment. But in this moment, when we're seeing trillions of dollars in bailouts, mostly for corporations, it is absolutely a time when we can do things that normally people could pretend that's too much, it's too big. We can't. We have literally all the money in the world that can be spent and directed towards making us the society we pretend to be before moments like this happen. And so the thing that gives me hope is that the lies have to be obvious now. The lies have to be that was a reasonable use of force. The lie has to be we don't have the money. The lie has to be that's too hard. It's too big of a challenge. This stuff feels impossible every day except today because the alternative is we lose everything. Everything is at stake. Our democracy is at stake. The people we choose to be, we claim to be, that's at stake. And in the face of that, I think we can do impossible things. I think we can be mighty. So my hope for all of us is first that we wake up tomorrow with more peace in the evening than war and that we hold on to what's possible from this moment at the same time that we hold on to the size of the task in front of us. I don't want to come out with half measures out of this. I don't want to come out with radicalized youth and indifferent aged. I don't know what the, the, the contract, that radicalized youth and, and indifferent people who are old like me. I want to come out with a unified country that understands that the costs that we owe are big and our pockets are deep enough to match it. Wow. Thank you to each of you for extraordinary eloquence. Really so powerful. And um, this conversation obviously um, continues. I know that there's many people listening. You'll have other questions. Um, this, I think, from Ted's point of view, is just the start of the conversation. But if, uh, to the extent that our job is to amplify voices that matter, we couldn't be prouder to be amplifying further your extraordinary voices. So thank you for being part of this today.